All right. Uh, Good morning again, church. It is great to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Genesis chapter 46. We have just five messages left in our series through Genesis, which is hard to believe. Um, But we have uh, another wonderful passage uh, in this book this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. uh, And the words will also be on the screen above me, and you can follow along in that way. I'm going to read through all of Genesis 46, uh, but we will be spending most of our time focusing on the first four verses. But read along with me now, uh, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Herzon, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jamul, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Prez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, Shimron, and the sons of Zebulon, Shered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padam Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether his sons and daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Zebon, Eri, Arodi, and Arelia, the sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishvan, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah their sister, and the sons of Bariah, Heber and Machiel. These are the sons of Zilpha, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt was born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ahi, Rosh, Muppim, Huppim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, whom were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jazeel, Juni, Jazer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Labah gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. 
All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons and wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons in the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. The book Into Thin Air tells a story of Rob Hall. It's a true story of an expedition of eight people who sent out on this expedition to summit Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, in 1996. And during this expedition, three of these men died on that mountain. Some of their bodies are still on this mountain to this day. And this book chronicles the many reasons for this disaster. And chief among these reasons was Rob Hall's failure to make decisions and to lead in a way which was at best for the interest of the expedition. Um, Rob Hall had failed to bring anyone to the summit the year before, and if he was to fail again, this would be bad for the business that he had of leading these expeditions. He was charging $65,000 per client, and he was promising to make all these people um, a successful trip to the summit. But in spite of unfavorable weather conditions and, and clear and obvious signs that this trip should be canceled, Hall pushed through the storm that ultimately led to the death of three men, including his own. The story is a sobering reminder of the, the dangers of following someone who is either unwilling or unable to make true to his promises. And while I doubt that any of us have attempted a, a summit of Mount Everest with an irresponsible tour guide, um, we probably all have experienced um, following someone who does not have our best interest in mind, or who we don't feel is able to accomplish the things that they promise to accomplish. Maybe this has been a boss that you work for. Maybe this has been a president. Maybe this has been a teacher. Those that we follow can often disappoint us, right? And and the more that we trust somebody, the greater risk that there is of us being hurt if they let us down. The farther along that we follow someone, the, the riskier it can become if they end up not being somebody that we should have followed. As we turn to our passage here in Genesis 46, we come to Jacob, who's who's faced with this decision to follow God into Egypt. And we're going to talk more about the difficulty of that decision. But he finds himself needing assurance that things are going to be okay. That God is going to be with him. That God's promises are true. 
And I wonder if there's some of here this morning, if not many of us, when we consider God and we consider our call to follow him, that we have some of these same questions. We find ourselves wondering, is God really active in our lives? Can he really be trusted? Is following God really worth it? Well, Genesis 46 is helpful in answering these questions. And my hope and my prayer has been that we're going to find in God's word this morning the strength and the reason to follow God this coming week. Here's the the main idea of our message this morning. It's that the courage to follow God comes through the assurance of his promises. The courage to follow God comes through the assurance of his promises. And we're going to look at four reasons to have courage, four reasons that we can be assured of God's promises this coming week. First, our God is a God who speaks. Second, our God is a God who reigns. Third, our God is a God who leads. And finally, our God is a God who delivers. First, first reason to have courage in God this week is that our God is a God who speaks. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember that Jacob had just found out that his son Joseph, who he thought had been dead for all these years, was actually very much alive, and he was second in command of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And he also found out that his other sons had lied to him about Joseph's death and actually sold him into slavery. So as you can imagine, this was probably a pretty disorienting moment for Jacob, right? Imagine the emotions that he's feeling. He's feeling relief that Joseph is alive. He's feeling anger at his sons for what they had done. He's probably wrestling with unbelief as to whether or not this really could be true. His his whole world has just been turned upside down here. But Joseph seems to be alive in Egypt, and so Jacob makes plans to travel to Egypt and to be reunited to his son. But there's something that Jacob needs to do first. We see this in verse 1. It says, So Israel, or, or Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifices to God of his father Isaac. These verses are loaded with significance. See, Jacob is eager to see his son again. So he packs up his whole family all his life, and he he sets out to begin his journey to Egypt. But before he does this, he needs to meet with God. And the reason for this is that Jacob is about to leave the promised land that God has called him to. And he's about to head into Egypt. And throughout the Old Testament, Egypt is always seen as the place of the enemies of God's people. In fact, earlier in Jacob's life, God had forbidden him from going to Egypt. But now Jacob's life has been turned upside down. There's famine spreading throughout the land. Joseph is alive and in Egypt. Nothing is turning out like Jacob had expected here. And it's not clear to him what God's plan is. And in this moment of of life's uncertainties, Jacob seeks God. And church, this is an example for us. All of us in life we face moments of uncertainty, right? So oftentimes in life, we find ourselves needing wisdom, needing to know how God would have us to move forward. 
And that's where many of us may even be this morning. Maybe there's a, a difficult decision ahead of you, and you need wisdom. Maybe there's a trial in your life, a, a broken relationship, and you need to know how God is calling you to move forward. Life is filled with uncertainties in life like these. In chapter 46, Jacob finds himself facing one of these uncertainties, and so he does what we must always do in the same circumstances. He seeks God, and God speaks to him. In verse 2, it says, And God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night. Church, this is such a hope-filled verse. Jacob seeks God, and God speaks to him. I think that of anything in this chapter, this is what has stood out to me the most and has proved to be most encouraging to me this week. God is not an impersonal God. He's not far off. God is a God who relates to his people. He speaks to his people. God is not a silent God. And I think that many of us, including myself this week, need to hear that. Because I think that oftentimes we might think of God as a God who is mostly silent. Yes, he, he loves us, but, but he's mostly distant. He, he, he's mostly off orchestrating events, kind of in the background, far off. And yes, that day is coming when we will see him face to face, but, but that's not this day, right? And, and so for now, we, we might not really expect that God is actually interested in speaking to us. And that's a very discouraging thought, right? I remember a, a distinct moment in my life about 15 years ago where, where I was walking through difficulties of life, many uncertainties. Life was kind of coming crashing down for me. And I remember late one night, about two in the morning, I was just walking through my neighborhood, walking through, walking, I was standing in the middle of the street, just walking through. And I remember looking up at the sky and I remember just, I remember crying out like, God, would you just say something to me? I think that lots of us have had an experience like that. And lots of us can walk through life with this baseline discouragement, thinking that God doesn't really have interest in speaking to us. But church, the opposite is true. And while God might not necessarily speak to us in in visions or audibly like he did here for Jacob in verse 2, though he can... But there are many ways in which God does speak and reveal himself to us. And there's evidence of this all throughout Scripture in significant ways and very very significant ways. uh, Psalms 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night reveals knowledge. God speaks to us, through the creation around us. If you've ever been to a beautiful sunset or stood beside a majestic mountain or stood up gazing at the stars on a starry night, you've witnessed the glory of God being declared to you. John Piper says of this, what does that mean? It means that God is shouting at us. He shouts with clouds. He shouts with blue expanse. He shouts with gold on the horizons. He shouts with galaxies and stars. He is shouting, I am glorious. Open your eyes. It's like this, only better if you know me. God speaks to us through creation. But church, God has not stopped 
making himself known only through his creation. He has spoken to us and continues to speak to us in much greater ways than this. Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. God is so eager to speak to us and to reveal himself to us that he sent his son, the perfect revelation of himself into this world to walk among us, to speak to us, to make his glory and his wisdom and his known and his love known to us through a person. God came in person to make himself known to us and to speak to us. Christmas is coming up next month, right? This is what we're going to be celebrating, the the incarnation of Christ. Some of you may already have your Christmas trees up, right? But you should take this down because it's not even Thanksgiving yet. Seriously, it's too early. But, But I mean, no matter what time of year, we should be amazed that God came in person to speak to us, to reveal himself to us. And even more than that, when Jesus left this earth, he told his disciples that he was going to send his spirit to abide in us. Mean that we have the very Spirit of God in us, church, to guide us, to give us wisdom, to speak to us to the ongoing works of the Holy Spirit, of encouragement and prophecy. Early next year, we're starting our, our, our new series in 1 Corinthians. We're going to talk more about how God works through His Spirit in these ways. But the Spirit of God is active and alive to speak to His church. And, and perhaps the greatest way that the Spirit does that is by helping us to know this book. These scriptures, these are the very words of God. And these words are active. They're living. Far from being a silent God, God has spoken to us. He has revealed himself to us in words. He has given us a book that is filled with speech and his wisdom and his direction and his glory. This is why our lives must be oriented around this book, church. Psalms 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law, the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Church, we must know this book. We must delight in this book. When we come to questions in life, when we come to disorienting experiences in life, when we need wisdom, when we need to hear the voice of God, we find it here. We cannot go through life seeking purpose or seeking happiness or navigating trials without spending our lives hearing from God by reading his word. God is a speaking God. So let us not go this week thinking that God is silent Instead, let us have courage to follow him with the assurance that he is a God who speaks to his people. So let us seek God like Jacob sought God. And let us do so with even greater ambition than Jacob did, since we have seen and heard from God even more clearly than he has. God is a God who speaks. And he speaks to Jacob in chapter 46, and he's speaking to us this morning those same truths. 
And the things that gave Jacob courage to follow God ought to give us courage to follow God this morning as well. So I want to to quickly walk now through the rest of these few verses and identify three more reasons that we can have courage to follow God this week. And this leads to point two, which is that our God is a God who reigns. God revealed himself to Jacob in this vision, and he says to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. So God begins here with the affirmation that he is God, the one true God who reigns over everything. This is the same God of Jacob's descendants, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. So here, God is is reaffirming the covenant that he has already made to his people and, and his promises to bring about what he has already promised to bring about. He's saying, Jacob, don't forget what you know to be true. Jacob knew who God was. He knew that God was a God who keeps his promises, but he needed to be reminded. Just like we often need to be reminded of things that we know to be true, that are obvious to us. Last summer, it was a particularly hot day in August, and I'd been driving around all day doing errands, and the AC in my car wasn't working. I hadn't really had that much to drink that day, and so I I started to feel dehydrated, so I saw a 7-Eleven on the side of the road, so I pulled off into the 7-Eleven, and I decided I was going to get a, a, a Slurpee, which I hadn't done in like 15 years, but I needed something. And so, so I pull off into the 7-Eleven, I walk in, I get my Slurpee, and I don't know what was going on in my head, but I just walked straight out of 7-Eleven without paying for it and got into my car to drive away. And, I, and I'm sitting in my car, and I, uh, I try to start it, but I have difficulty because my key is not fitting into the ignition. And I'm, I'm like, okay, this, this is weird. And so I begin kind of looking around at my environment and my surroundings. And I see all these things in my car that don't belong to me that I've never actually seen before. And so I'm sitting there kind of like kind of trying to orient myself to the situation. And uh, it suddenly dawns on me that I am in somebody else's car. And then it also dawns on me that I had not paid for my Slurpee and I had stolen it from 7-Eleven. Like seriously, I bought this drink, I walked right past a line of people paying for theirs and got into someone else's car to try to drive away. I had completely forgotten about some very basic truths of my life. Like what type of car I drive. And that you can't steal things from 7-Eleven. And, and, and I remember sitting there thinking to myself, What is happening right now? Like, you're a full-grown adult, Jason. You know better than this. You're smarter than this, Jason. I was dehydrated. I'm blaming it on dehydration. But in that moment, I needed to be reoriented to some very obvious realities about my life in order to make good choices in this situation. And sometimes, we just need to be reminded of what we know is true. Things that should be obvious to us in the moment, but often are not. And that's what's happening here in verse 3. God is reminding Jacob of what he already knows. And as he goes down to Egypt, the God that he is following, he is the one true God. He is able to perform whatever he promises. He does not change. If he has been faithful in the past, which Jacob knows that he has, then he will be faithful in the future as well. 
And this is what Jacob needs to be reminded of in order to have the courage to follow God into the unknown of Egypt. And we see this in verses 8 through 2, where, where he's bringing his whole family to Egypt, right? It's verses 8 through, through 20 to 27. It's, it's no one of these long list of names in the Bible that we often can, can glaze over, but it's actually really important. It's weighty to lead through this list of people because it is a detailed list of the entirety of God's people. Verse 27 ends with all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. The number 70 in the Bible means number of completeness. It's possible that it wasn't truly 70 people who journeyed into Egypt, but this number may have been rounded down to 70 to emphasize the point that Jacob is taking everybody with him, his whole family, all of his possessions. And this took an incredible amount of courage because Jacob is now taking all of Israel out of the promised land and into Egypt, into the unknown. And if God does not come true on his promises, if God doesn't prove to be faithful, then this might be the end of God's people. But Jacob is all in. He takes everyone. He doesn't leave some of his family behind for safety. He doesn't send a a small group ahead to confirm that God's promises are really true. No, he's all in. He knows who God is. All his hope and his confidence is in that God reigns. And he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he has promised to make them into a great nation. And church, God comes through on that promise. When Israel entered Egypt, they entered with around 70 people. And 430 years later, they left Egypt. And while we don't know the exact number that left Egypt, historians suggest that the numbers were probably around 2.4 million people. From 70 to 2.4 million people. I would say that God proved to be true to his promises, right? He reigns over all. He accomplishes what he says that he is going to accomplish. He can be trusted. And sometimes in life, we need that simple reminder. Maybe there are some of you here this morning who are facing a difficult decision in front of you. And you you know what God is calling you to do. You've heard from God. You you know the path that he's called you to take. Or maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe, maybe sometimes you need to go back to God's word, back to prayer, seek God again for his direction. But oftentimes in life, we know what God is calling us to. But we also know that it's filled with dangers and unknowns, and we doubt whether or not God is going to help. Following God can be difficult. It might mean stepping into unknowns. But remember this morning what you know to be true about God. He reigns over everything. He is true to his promises. He can be trusted. Nothing is too hard for our God. Follow him this week and he will prove to be faithful. And church, he will go with you where he calls you. And this leads us to the third reason to have courage this morning, is that God is a God who leads. In verses 2 through 3, God has spoken to Jacob and has assured him that he is the one true God, that he is going to bless Jacob, that he's going to carry out his plans for his people, 
And so God says, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Now, Jacob has lots of reasons to be afraid here. We've spoken about this already, but, but Egypt has been a place that they are to avoid for all these years. So now it's uncomfortable that he's being called there. And also, Jacob is old. He's 130 years old. He does not have a lot of strength left with him. And this journey to Egypt is a dangerous journey. It's possible he might not even survive the journey to Egypt. And also, Egypt is a land of idolatry. And so I'd imagine that Jacob is probably concerned about the effects that this might have on his family. I mean, his sons have already proven to not be people of godliness and great obedience to God, right? And so, so now he's wondering, how is this new land going to influence them and influence my family? And finally, he's, he's just leaving home, right? He's, he's being called out of the comfort of what he knows and into new dangers and challenges. So Jacob has real reason to be afraid here. But God addresses this fear. And, and I love how God addresses it here in verse 4. We, we cannot miss this detail. This, this may be the best part of the whole chapter. Again, in verses 2 through 3, God's spoken to Jacob. He's reminded him that he is the one true God, and that he's going to make Israel into a great nation. And so he says, Jacob, have courage. Be assured of my promises. But God knows the difficulty of Jacob's journey. He knows the real dangers before him. He knows the very real reasons that Jacob has to be afraid. And so God makes one more promise to Jacob. In verse 4, he says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I remember when I was a kid, I used to hate going down into our basement alone because it was dark down there. And I, I, no matter how much I tried to rationalize it in my mind, something deep inside me was convinced that there were these dark creatures of the night. They would devour me if I got trapped down there in the dark, right? And uh, at one point, I had this basement where the, the only light switch in the basement was in the bottom of the basement, which is a horrible idea because you had to go down into the darkness to turn the light on in the basement. And then when you were leaving the basement, you had to turn the light off before you went back up the stairs, which was terrifying, right? So you had to, some of you probably know what I'm talking about, you kind of had to go halfway up the steps and we just reach way down, like flick that light and like scramble quick up the steps before like the, the darkness like devoured you. Um, it, was, it was terrifying. I may or may not still do the same thing even to this day. Um, but I, I hated going down into the basement as a kid alone. But I'll tell you what, if my dad went down into the basement with me, totally different ball game. All fear was gone. Like, knowing that I was not alone made all the difference. And that's the effect of God's promise to Jacob. Rather imagined or real, there were many reasons that Jacob had fear to go down to Egypt. There were many reasons not to follow God. There were many reasons to remain in the comfort of what he knew. But what mattered was that God was going with him. And church, this is our hope as well. In, in the uncomfortable circumstances of life, in the uncertainty of, of medical diagnosis, in the unknown outcome of a difficult relationship, what gives us courage is to know that God is, he's not just sovereign over all events. 
He doesn't just promise to work all things together for good. But most importantly, he promises to go with us himself. One of my favorite places in all the scripture is Psalm 23, verse 6. The the author of this psalm is very aware of the valleys in his life. He speaks of the valleys of the shadow of death that he's walking through. But he understands God's heart toward him. And he clings to this promise at the end in verse 6, which says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I love this verse. This is a life verse for me. I love the hope in this verse. The psalmist looks at the difficult circumstances of his life, the valleys that he is walking through. He sees the difficulties ahead of him. And he, he has no illusion that following God is always easy. But here's where he finds his courage to do so. Is that the goodness and mercy of God will follow us all the days of our lives. And what this doesn't mean is that God is kind of somewhere out there in the background uh, waiting to help us whenever we need it. No, what this means is that God is pursuing us. He is tracking us down to do good to us, to show us goodness and mercy. He goes before us. He goes with us. There is no escaping the goodness and mercy of God. And Jacob had the courage to follow God knowing that his future was secure because God was going with him to Egypt. And Jacob also knew that Egypt wasn't going to be his final destination. And this brings us to our final point, our final reason to have courage in the promises of God this morning. And that is that our God is a God who delivers. God continues his promises to Jacob in verse 4 by saying, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. The hope that Jacob had to follow God into Egypt would not be complete without this final promise from God. Yes, God was going with Jacob into Egypt, and yes, he was going to make Israel into a great nation there, but Egypt was not the promised land. And Jacob knew that, he, that this move to Egypt probably meant that he was going to spend his final days there. He will most likely die in Egypt, and he'll be buried there, far away from the promised land that God had given him. And so this final word from God in verse 4 is so meaningful. He will spend his final days in Egypt. By God's kindness, he will do so with his long-lost son by his side. But then he will be brought back out of Egypt. In chapter 50, at the, the very end of Genesis, after Jacob died, it says his family brought him back to the promised land, where he was buried with his ancestors in the land that God had given him. God was faithful to deliver Jacob out of Egypt. And in doing so, this would serve as a symbol of God's promises to future generations. In Exodus... The very next book of the Bible, the whole story is about God bringing all of Israel out of Egypt toward the promised land. And all of this is an even greater picture of how God has delivered us as well. The blessing of Jacob, the deliverance from Egypt, the hope of the promised land, these are all shadows of an even greater plan that God had for his people and the ultimate hope that has been revealed to us in Christ, where we would be delivered Not from Egypt, but from sin and death. 
See, God went down with Jacob to Egypt. And he was true to his promises to bring him back out again. But church, that is just a glimpse of the hope that we have in the gospel. God went down to Egypt with Jacob. But in Christ, God went down to the grave for us. And he came out of that grave, church. And so will we. God's bringing Jacob's body out of Egypt was a picture of how God would one day deliver us from all the trials of this life, all the effects of sin, from all the sorrows and fears and even death itself. Christ has defeated all of these enemies, church. And because of what he's done, there is nothing that will hold God's people back from the deliverance that he has brought us. Not sin, not Satan, not Egypt, not even death itself. Jacob didn't see all the promises that God had made to him come fully true in his lifetime, right? And neither have we. But that day is coming, church, when Christ will return and we will be raised to new life with him in heaven. Which is why Paul says in Philippians 1, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Meaning that this life is about following Christ. This life is about knowing Christ, knowing his word, living courageous lives, knowing that in Christ all our enemies have been defeated, even death. And so that now death is gain because it is in the next life. Just as Jacob's body was brought out of the promised land, so we will be brought to that final promised land where all of God's promises will be fully realized. Which is why Paul also says in 2 Corinthians, as he speaks of this life and these light momentary afflictions, that they are preparing for us a weight of eternal glory beyond all comparison. This is our hope this week, church. And this is our hope for all of eternity as well. Our courage to follow God this week comes to the assurance of his promises. That he is a God who speaks. That he is a God who reigns over everything. That he is a God who goes with us where he calls us. And he is a God who will bring us home. Let's follow him with courage this week, church.